The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of my fabulous sponsors or advertisers. Any content provided by our bloggers or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. This disclaimer was provided by DisclaimerTemplate.com. Hey, (laughs) y'all. It is Tuesday, May 11th, Motherland, May 11th, 2021. And y'all know what? I had made all of these little TikToks before uh, May started. I had put them in my drafts. And I was going to save them, but I don't know. I'm on a frenzy today. So I went on ahead and I just posted them all back to back. But I may have alienated some people, but that's what I do. Oh, well. So anyway, today is my day off now. I've been sitting here all day waiting for the exterminator. They never did show up, but it's fine. Because I wasn't ready anyway. <laughs> I know my manager's playing a game, but it's a game she's going to lose. Anyway, on today's episode of Just Miss Rose, I don't know what I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> but I am going to make this conscious effort since I'm sitting here doing absolutely nothing but cooking, I'm going to go ahead and try and get this episode under my belt. This will be episode 105, and we'll be right back with whatever we're going to talk about. (laughs) I love you for listening. Now, you guys know normally I would read some article that I found about something, but I'm not doing that today. Today, I'm just going to (laughs) rant. Now, I'm going to probably listen to this before I publish it. And if it's too stupid, oh, well, I'm still going to publish it. (laughs) Now. For you guys that are my loyal listeners, you know I have been doing this podcast since October 13, 2020, when I launched it. And I said on several occasions this month, I'm going to do a podcast every day. It really is harder to do than I thought because I get to sleeping and working and just basically living my life and I'm just sometimes just I just don't feel like reading an article or I don't feel like cooking or it's a lot of stuff I don't feel like doing but then you know life goes on whether you do or not now right now I am making some seasoned rice and I had some leftover cocktail shrimp well, you know, those little cooked shrimp. And on top of the uh, 
shrimp, I mean, on top of the picture on the bag, they had, you know, the rice, and they had a couple of pieces of shrimp on top, and I said, oh, perfect, I'll take these sea roaches, yeah, I know they're sea roaches, I don't care, but you know, it's a lot of stuff that I'm learning now that this pandemic has changed everybody's lives by, you know, isolating us and then, you know, morphing us into who, who we are now. And this is who I am now. And, you know, I'm going through a lot of stuff in my life that sometimes I talk about it, sometimes I don't. You know, it just depends. But a long time ago, a lady told me, if you, you know, look at life like this, look at life like a garbage can, stuff happens. Now, you take, oh, excuse me, y'all. You take that stuff that happens to you in life and you put it in the trash right you know the good stuff you put in your little memory bank and the bad stuff you put in the trash but if you never empty that trash eventually that trash is going to overflow and that trash overflow usually ends up manifesting itself as bad behavior And heaven knows, throughout my 60 years, I have displayed some terrible, terrible behavior. And that's why I always say karma is a dog with fleas. Because, you know, that's an old expression, everything you do comes back to you. Now, of course, when we're young, we never think about that. Oh, no, whatever. But as you get older and things that you did in your youth come back and slap you in the face... You go, wow, really? It took 20 years to come back? Hey, it doesn't matter. Because as long as you are living and you're doing stuff and you're living your life, unless you're a hermit sitting in your house not doing anything whatsoever, you're going to have experiences in life. Some of them are going to be fabulous, good experiences. Some of them are not going to be so fabulous. But it all boils down to how you decide to handle it. You know, say you start hearing voices in your head. The voices might say, hey, you over to go over there and kill that person. You have the right to say to that voice in your head, shut up. That's some stupid shit. I don't want to, I'm not doing that. I don't care what the voices say. Who are you? Get out. But everybody does not have the wherewithal to do that. But everybody has the ability to do it if they just try. But that's the thing with life. There is nothing on this earth impossible unless you tell yourself it's impossible. As soon as you say, I can't, you automatically have defeated yourself. You have, you're, you're done because you already told yourself you cannot. So you should take that out of your vocabulary. There's nothing on this earth you can't do if you don't, you know, if you apply yourself, okay? Now, there are systems in place in this country of America that that I live in where they make it difficult. Yes, difficult. But there's a thing called perseverance. And we black folks, we got perseverance and we ain't got nothing else, Okay. We are going to persevere. We are going to rise 
above whatever obstacles are placed in our way. Because that's just the type of people that we are. That is why, you know, some of these people are so fearful. And they don't understand that we are not looking for revenge. We just want equality and we want equal treatment. And we don't want to be murdered just for being, you know, black. And that's... I said what I said. Okay, I'm blowing on my rice and checking on my food, you guys. So I'm going to take this moment. Mm. Oh, that's so good, y'all. I'm going to take this moment. Take a pause for the cause. And I'm going to find an article to read because y'all know I'm going to read something. I got to read something because, you know, I use this. Not just to, you know, talk to myself and help myself, but to help other people as well. Oh, that's good. And my ranting and raving does not necessarily help anybody but me. So, for the next portion, I will find it. I promise you guys, I'll find an article. It'll be relevant to something. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Y'all got to try this shrimp and rice. It's delicious. Mm. Go get a snack or dinner or breakfast or whatever. Because I don't know what time it is, where you are, or what time you're listening to this. But I really do appreciate you listening. I'll be right back. All right, y'all. Now, I decided, as I was looking for something to read, um, I got a notification on my phone for the pattern. Y'all know I told y'all about that before the uh, pattern app and I decided let me see what is the pattern what they want so you know they have your pattern which is my specifically to me your timing and then world timing and right now we're in the fresh start May 10th through the 12th so it's yesterday today and tomorrow so I'm just gonna go ahead because the pattern is all up in your business so, because it's world timing, it pertains to us all. And there's only one day left. So, I'm going to go ahead and read from the pattern app. Okay? And it says, Fresh Start, May 10th through the 12th. Current, May 11th, 2021. Break Free, Cycle Length, May 11th to May 13th. Okay. Today, it can seem like any sense of grounded responsibility might be fading into the background. If you tend to be a free spirit, you may find it hard to take your responsibilities seriously. The urge to break free could be very strong. If you're choosing play over other priorities there could be some consequences. So try to stay as grounded as possible and find a balance that's aligned with your commitments and relationships. Today, you might ask yourself, how can I balance my need for freedom with my priorities? Ideally, You can tap into some fresh energy and find inspiration during this period. 
be aware that if this energy isn't true for you, others around you may be experiencing it. Okay, the pattern all up in my business. Well, they're not in my business. They're in the world business right on this one. Yeah, y'all nosy. Y'all, because y'all nosy. Well, see, this is my pattern. And this is just some stuff about me, which I'm not going to read because it's a lot. But we'll do my timing. Nope, because it's not relevant for right now. So, guess what, you guys? Yeah, mm, this is going to be it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I am so goofy, okay, I'm gonna go find something else to read, I know, I know, I know, give me a minute, I'm gonna find something, I'm gonna find something, I know, cause you just, re- I know you just listening to this so you can go to sleep, <laughs> I know I gotta give you at least 25 minutes, okay, fine, whatever, I'll be back in a minute. I should play another commercial. I should because you know why? Cause it's a filler. <laughs> hey, anchor.fm. I need another sponsor. All right, you guys. We'll be right back. <laughs> okay, y'all. I'm on Google Play Store, and I went to the Google Books, and I downloaded a free sample of the New York Times bestseller, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, White Rage, by Carol Anderson. (laughs) Now, (laughs) what? I don't care. If you don't want to hear it, you don't have to listen to this, okay? But this is a National Book Critics Circle Award winner, New York Times bestseller, a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, a Washington Post Notable Nonfiction Book of the Year, a Boston Globe Best Book of 2016, a Chicago Review of Books Best Nonfiction Book of 2016, a Globe and Mail Best book of the year and a Dallas Morning News top 10 of 2016. Now, I'm going to actually purchase this entire book, but it's more praise and I'm not going to read that at all because to those who aspired and paid the price is who the book is dedicated to. White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide by Carol Anderson. And this was published by Bloomsbury, New York, London, Oxford, New Delhi, and Sydney. Okay, that's the contents. A note on the author. Now, this is what I'm going to do for you guys. I'm going to read the prologue. Yeah, that's the before the story. (laughs) And the prologue is called Kindling. Although I first wrote about white rage in a Washington Post op-ed following the killing of Michael Brown and the subsequent uprising in Ferguson, Missouri, 
the concept started to germinate much earlier. It was in the wake of another death at the hands of police, that of Amadou Diallo, a West African immigrant who, stepping out of his apartment building in New York City, was mowed down in a hail of NYPD bullets on February 4th. 1999. Though the killing was horrific enough, 41 bullets were fired, 19 of which hit their target. What left me truly stunned was the clinical antiseptic policy rationale espoused by New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. On the news show Nightline, the mayor virtually ignoring Diallo's death. Move. Oh my God, you guys, hold on. Ignoring Diallo's death, glibly and confidently spouted one statistic after the next to demonstrate how the NYPD was the most restrained and best behaved police department you could imagine. He touted policies that had reduced crime in New York and dismissed African-Americans' concerns about racial profiling, stop and frisk, and police brutality as unfounded. If the NYPD weren't in those poorer neighborhoods, he asserted, the police would be accused of caring only about the affluent. Giuliani then countered that the real issue was the community's racism against the police and unwillingness to take responsibility for the issues plaguing their neighborhoods. But restrained and behaved police don't fire 41 bullets at an unarmed man. Moreover, New York's aggressive law enforcement policy appeared to expend most of its energy on the groups bringing the smallest yield of criminal activity. In 1999, blacks and Hispanics, who made up 50% of New York City's population, accounted for 84% of those stopped and frisked by the NYPD while the majority of illegal drugs and weapons were found on the relatively small number of whites detained by police. There obviously was so much more going on here with Amadou Diallo's death than was actually being discussed throughout the media, more than Giuliani was letting on, and more than even the outraged discussions in the beauty shops and barbershops managed to pinpoint. Only I didn't know what to call it, what to name the unsettling and disturbing performance by Giuliani that I had just witnessed. Fifteen years later, I experienced that same feeling, although the circumstances this time were somewhat different. In August 2014, Ferguson, Missouri went up in flames, and commentators throughout the print and digital media served up variations of the same story. African Americans angered by the police killing of an unarmed black teen were taking out their frustration in unproductive and predictable ways, rampaging, burning, and looting. Framing the discussion, dominating it, in fact, was an overwhelming focus on black rage. 
op-eds and news commentators debated whether Michael Brown was surrendering to or assaulting a police officer when six bullets took him down. They wrangled over whether Brown was really an innocent 18-year-old college student or a thug who had just committed a strong-arm robbery. The operative question seemed to be whether African Americans were justified in their rage, even if that rage manifested itself in the most destructive, nonsensical ways. Again and again, across America's ideology spectrum, from Fox News to MSNBC, the issue was framed in terms of black rage, which, it seemed to me, entirely missed the point. I had previously lived in Missouri and had seen the subtle but powerful ways that public policy had systematically undercut democracy in the state. When, for example, the Brown versus Board of Education 1954 decision came down, the state immediately declared that all its schools would be integrated, only to announce that it would leave it up to the local districts to implement the Supreme Court decision. Movement was glacial. It took another generation of black parents fighting all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in search of some relief. In the final analysis, however, Missouri's schools remained separate and unequal. Thus, in the 21st century, Michael Brown's school district had been on probation for 15 years, annually accruing only oh my goodness, 10 out of 140 points on the state's accreditation scale. It was the same with policing, housing, voting, and employment, all of which carried the undercurrents of racial inequality, even after the end of slavery. The triumphs of the civil rights movement and the election of Barack Obama to the presidency, the policies in Missouri were articulated as coolly and analytically as were Giuliani's in New York. That led to an epiphany. What was really at work here was white rage. With so much attention focused on the flames, everyone had ignored the logs, the kindling. In some ways, it is easy to see why. White rage is not about visible violence, but rather it works its way through the courts, the legislatures, and a range of government bureaucracies. It wrecks havoc subtly, almost imperceptibly. Too imperceptibly, certainly for a nation consistently drawn to the spectacular, to what it can see. It's not the Klan. Right rage doesn't have to wear sheets, burn crosses, or take to the streets. Working the halls of power, it can achieve its ends far more effectively, far more destructively. And we'll be right back.
In my Washington Post op-ed, Therefore, I set out to make white rage visible, to blow graphite onto that hidden fingerprint and trace its historic movements over the past 150 years. The trigger for white rage inevitably is black advancement. It is not the mere presence of black people that is the problem. Rather, it is blackness with ambition, with drive, with purpose, with aspirations, and with demands for full and equal citizenship. It is blackness that refuses to accept subjugation, to give up. A formidable array of policy assaults and legal contortions has consistently punished black resilience, black resolve. And all the while, white rage manages to maintain not only the upper hand, but also, apparently, the moral high ground. It's Giuliani chastising black people to fix the problems in their own neighborhoods instead of always scapegoating the police. It's the endless narratives about a culture of black poverty that devalues education, hard work, family, and ambition. It's a mantra told so often that some African Americans themselves have come to believe it. Few even think anymore to question the stories, the studies of black fathers abandoning their children, of rampant drug use in black neighborhoods, of African American children hating education because school is acting white all of which have been disproved but remain foundational in American lore. The truth is that enslaved Africans plotted and worked hard with some even fighting in the Union Army for their freedom and citizenship. After the Civil War, they took what little they had and built schools, worked the land to establish their economic independence, and searched desperately to bring their families, separated by slavery, back together. That drive, initiative, and resolve, however, was met with the black codes, with army troops throwing them off their promised 40 acres, and then with a slew of Supreme Court decisions eviscerating the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The truth is that when World War I provided the opportunity in the North for blacks to get jobs with unheard of pay scales and, better yet, the chance for their children to finally have good schools, African Americans fled the oppressive conditions in the South. White authorities stopped the trains, arresting people whose only crime was leaving the state. They banned a nationally distributed newspaper, 
jailed people for carrying poetry and instituted another form of slavery under the rules of federal law. Not the First Amendment, the right to travel, nor even the basic laws of capitalism were any match. The truth is that opposition to black advancement is not just a Southern phenomenon. In the North, it has been just as intense, just as determined, and in some ways, just as destructive. When during the Great Migration, African Americans moved into the cities, ready to work hard for decent housing and good schools, they were locked down in uninhabitable slums. To try to break out of that squalor with a college degree or in a highly respected profession only intensified the response. Prejured testimony was transmuted into truth. A future Nuremberg judge ran roughshod over state law. And even the bitterest newspaper rivals saw fit to join together when it came to upholding a lie. The truth is that when the Brown versus Board of Education decision came down in 1954 and black children finally had a chance at a decent education, white authorities didn't see children striving for quality schools and an opportunity to fully contribute to society. They saw only a threat and acted accordingly, shutting down schools, diverting public money into private coffers, leaving millions of citizens in educational rot, willing even to undermine national security in the midst of a major crisis, all to ensure that blacks did not advance. The truth is that the hard-fought victories of the civil rights movement caused a reaction that stripped Brown of its power, severed the jugular of the Voting Rights Act, closed off access to higher education, poured crack cocaine into the inner cities, and locked up more black men proportionately than even apartheid-era South Africa. The truth is that Despite all of this, a black man was elected president of the United States, the ultimate advancement, and thus the ultimate affront. Perhaps not surprisingly, voting rights were severely curtailed, the federal government was shut down, and more than once the office of the president was shockingly, openly, and publicly disrespected by other elected officials. And as the, the judicial system in state after state turned free, those who had decided a neighborhood's safety meant killing first and asking questions later, a very real warning was sent that black lives don't matter. The truth is, white rage has undermined democracy, 
warped the Constitution, weakened the nation's ability to compete economically, squandered billions of dollars on baseless incarceration, rendered an entire region sick, poor, and woefully undereducated, and left cities nothing less than decimated. All this havoc has been wrecked simply because African Americans wanted to work, get an education, live in decent communities, raise their families, and vote. Because there were because they were unwilling to take no for an answer. Thus, these seemingly isolated episodes reaching back to the 19th century and carrying forward to the 21st, once fitted together like pieces in a mosaic, reveal a portrait of a nation, one that is the unspoken truth of our racial divide. And that, ladies and gentlemen, my lovely loyal listeners, is the end of the prologue to White Rage by Carolyn Anderson. I'm not going to read any further because that is the end of this episode of Just Miss Rose. (laughs) I love you for listening. Yeah, you can get that on Google Play. And I'm going to buy the whole book. And it does give you like a couple more pages. I, I'm not even going it, to. I'm stopping at chapter one. You know, that was the prologue though. You know, so you guys don't let anybody take your square. I love you.